0: Chapter 7 of Marcia Schuyler by Grace Livingston Hill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 For some distance, the way was lined with people they knew, servants and negroes, standing about the driveway and outside the fence, people of the village grouped along the sidewalk, everybody out upon their doorsteps to watch the coach go by, and to all, the face of the bride was a puzzle and a surprise. They half expected to see another coach coming with the other bride behind. Marcia nodded brightly to those she knew and threw flowers from the great nosegay that had been put upon her lap by Harriet. She felt for a few minutes like a girl in a fairy tale, riding in this fine coach in grand attire. She stole a look at David. He certainly looked like a prince, but gravity was already settling about his mouth. Would he always look so now, she wondered, would he never laugh and joke again as he used to do? Could she manage to make him happy sometimes for a little while and help him to forget? Down through the village they passed, in front of the store and post office where Marcia had bought her frock but three days before, and they turned up the road she had come with Marianne. How long ago that seemed! How light her heart was then, and how young! All life was before her with its delightful possibilities. Now it seemed to have closed for her, and she was someone else. A great ache came upon her heart. For a moment she longed to jump down and run away from the coach and David and the new clothes that were not hers, away from the new life that had been planned for someone else which she must live now. She must always be a woman, never a girl any more. Out past Granny McVeigh's they drove, the old lady sitting upon her front porch knitting endless stockings she stared mildly unrecognizingly at marcia and paused in her rocking to crane her neck after the coach the tall corn rustled and waved green arms to them as they passed and the cows looked up munching from the pasture in mild surprise at the turnout the little coach dog stepped aside from the road to give them a bark as he passed and then pattered and pattered his tiny feet to catch up the old schoolhouse came in sight with its worn playground and dejected summer air and Marcia's eyes searched out the window where she used to sit to eat her lunch in winters, and the tree under which she used to sit in summers, and the path by which she and Marianne used to wander down to the brook, or go in search of butternuts, even the old doorknob that her hand would probably never grasp again. She searched them all out and bade them good-bye with her eyes. THEN ONCE SHE TURNED A LITTLE TO SEE IF SHE COULD CATCH A GLIMPSE OF THE OLD BLACKBOARD THROUGH THE WINDOW WHERE SHE AND SUSANNA BROWN AND MILLER THOMPSON USED TO DO ARITHMETIC ad- EXAMPLES. THE DUST OF THE COACH OR THE BEES IN THE SUNSHINE OR SOMETHING IN HER EYES BLURRED HER VISION. SHE COULD ONLY SEE A LONG SLANT RAY OF A SUNBEAM CROSSING THE WALL WHERE SHE KNEW IT MUST BE. THEN THE ROAD WOUND AROUND THROUGH A MAPLE GROVE AND THE SCHOOL WAS LOST TO VIEW. They passed the south meadow belonging to the Westons, and Hanford was plowing. Marcia could see him stop to wipe the perspiration from his brow, and her heart warmed even to this boy admirer, now that she was going from him forever. Hanford had caught sight of the coach, and he turned to watch it, thinking to see Kate sitting in the bride's place. He wondered if the bride would notice him, and turned a deeper red under his heavy coat of tan. And the bride did notice him. She smiled the sweetest smile the boy had ever seen upon her face, the smile he had dreamed of as he thought of her, at night standing under the stars all alone by his father's gatepost whittling the crossbar of the gate. For a moment he forgot that it was the bridal party passing, forgot the stern-faced bridegroom, and saw only Marcia, his girl love. His heart stood still, and a bright light of response filled his eyes, he took off his wide straw hat and bowed her reverence. He would have called to her and tried three times, but his dry throat gave forth no utterance, and when he looked again the coach was past, and only the flutter of a white handkerchief came back to him and told him the beginning of the truth. Then the poor boy's face grew white, yes, white, and stricken under the tan, and he tottered to the roadside and sat down with his face in his hands, to try and comprehend what it might mean, while the old horse dragged the plow whither he would in search of a bite of tender grass. What could it mean? And why did Marcia occupy that place beside the stranger, obviously the bridegroom? Was she going on a visit? He had heard of no such plan. Where was her sister? Would there be another coach presently, and was this man then not the bridegroom, but merely a friend of the family? Of course that must be it." He got up and staggered to the fence to look down the road, but no one came by save the jogging old gray and carry-all with Aunt Polly grim and offended, and Uncle Joab meek and depressed beside her. Could he have missed the bridal carriage when he was at the other end of the lot? Could they have gone another way? He had a half a mind to call to Uncle Joab to inquire, only he was a timid boy, and shrank back until it was too late. But why had Marcia, as she rode away, wafted that strange farewell that had in it the familiarity of the final? And why did he feel so strange and weak in his knees? Marcia was to help his mother next week at the quilting bee. She had not gone away to stay, of course. He got up and tried to whistle and turn the furrows evenly as before, but his heart was heavy, and, try as he would, he could not understand the feeling that kept telling him marcia was gone out of his life forever at last his day's work was done and he could hasten to the house without waiting for his supper he slicked up as he called it and went at once to the village where he learned the bitter truth it was mary ann who told him mary ann the plain the awkward who secretly admired hanford weston as she might have admired an angel and who as little expected him to speak to her as if he had been one Mary Marianne stood by her front gate in the dusk of the summer evening, the halo of her unusual wedding finery upon her, for she had taken advantage of being dressed up to make two or three visits since the wedding, and so prolong the holiday. The light of the sunset softened her plain features and gave her a gentler look than was her wont. Was it that, and an air of lonesomeness akin to his own, that made Hanford stop and speak to her? And then she told him. She could not keep it in long it was the wonder of her life and it filled her so that her thought had no room for anything else to think of marcia taken in a day gone from their midst forever gone to be a grown-up woman in a new world it was as strange as sudden death and almost as terrible and beautiful there were tears in her eyes and in the eyes of the boy as they spoke about the one who was gone and the kind dusk hid the sight so that neither knew but each felt a subtle sympathy with the other and before Hanford started upon his desolate way home, under the burden of his first sorrow, he took Mary Ann's slim, bony hand in his and said quite stiffly, "'Well, good-night, Miss Marianne. I'm glad you told me.' And Marianne responded with a deep blush under her freckles in the dark, "'Good-night, Mr. Weston, and call again.' Something of the sympathy lingered with the boy as he went on his way, and he was not without a certain sort of comfort." while Marianne climbed to her little chamber in the loft with a new wonder to dream over. Meanwhile, the coach drove on, and Marcia passed from her childhood's home into the great world of men and women, changes, heartbreakings, sorrows, and joys. David spoke to her kindly now and then, asked if she was comfortable, if she would prefer to change seats with him, if the cushions were right, and if she had forgotten anything. He seemed nervous and anxious to have this part of the journey over, and asked the coachman frequent questions about the horses and the speed they could make. Marcia thought she understood that he was longing to get away from the painful reminder of what he had expected to be a joyful trip, and her young heart pitied him, while yet it felt an undertone of hurt for herself. She found so much unadulterated joy in this charming ride with the beautiful horses in this luxurious coach that she could not bear to have it spoiled by the thought that only David's sadness and pain had made it possible for her. Constantly as the scene changed and new sights came upon her view, she had to restrain herself from crying out with happiness over the beauty and calling David's attention. Once she did point out a bird just leaving a stalk of goldenrod, its light touch making the spray to bow and bend. David had looked with unseeing eyes, and smiled with uncomprehending assent. Marcia felt she might as well have been talking to herself. He was not even the old friend and brother he used to be. She drew a gentle little sigh and wished this might have been only a happy ride with the ending at home, and a longer girlhood uncrossed by this wall of trouble that Kate had put up in a night for them all. The coach came at last to the town where they were to stop for dinner and a change of horses. Marcia looked about with interest at the houses, streets, and people. There were two girls of about her own age, with long hair braided down their backs. They were walking with arms about each other, as she and Marianne had often done. She wondered if any such sudden changes might be coming to them as had come into her life. They turned and looked at her curiously, enviously it seemed, as the coach drew up to the tavern and she was helped out with ceremony doubtless they thought of her as she had thought of kate but last week she was shown into the dim parlor of the tavern and seated in a stiff hair-cloth chair it was all new and strange and delightful before a high gilt mirror set on great glass knobs like rosettes she smoothed her wind-blown hair and looked back at the reflection of her strange self with startled eyes even her face seemed changed she knew the bonnet and arrangement of hair were becoming but she felt unacquainted with them and wished for her own modest braids and plain bonnet. Even a sun bonnet would have been welcome and have made her feel more like herself. David did not see how pretty she looked when he came to take her to the dining room ten minutes later. His eyes were looking into the hard future, and he was steeling himself against the glances of others. He must be the model bridegroom in the sight of all who knew him. His pride bore him out in this, he had acquaintances all along the way home. They were expecting the bridal party, for David had arranged that a fine dinner should be ready for his bride. Fine it was, with the best cooking and table service the mistress of the tavern could command, and with many a little touch new and strange to Marcia and therefore interesting. It was all a lovely play, till she looked at David. David ate but little, and Marcia felt she must hurry through the meal for his sake. Then, when the carry-all was ready, he put her in, and they drove away. Marcia's keen intuition told her how many little things had been thought of and planned for, for the comfort of the one who was to have taken this journey with David. Gradually the thought of how terrible it was for him, and how dreadful of Kate to have brought this sorrow upon him, overcame all other thoughts. Sitting thus quietly, with her hands folded tight in the faded bunch of roses little Harriet had given her at parting, the last remaining of the flowers she had carried with her, Marcia let the tears come. Silently they flowed in gentle rain, and had not David been borne down with the thought of his own sorrow, he must have noticed long before he did the sadness of the sweet young face beside him. But she turned away from him as much as possible that he might not see, and so they must have driven for half an hour through a dim sweet wood before he happened to catch a sight of the tear-wet face and knew suddenly that there were other troubles in the world beside his own. "'Why, child, what is the matter?' he said, turning to her with grave concern. "'Are you so tired? I am afraid I have been very dull company,' with a sigh. "'You must forgive me, child, Today, "'Oh, David, don't!' said Marcia, putting her face down into her hands, and crying now, regardless of the roses. "'I do not want you to think of me. It is dreadful, dreadful for you.' I am so sorry for you. I wish I could do something. Dear child, he said, putting his hand upon hers. Bless you for that. But do not let your heart be troubled about me. Try to forget me and be happy. It is not for you to bear this trouble. But I must bear it, said Marcia, sitting up and trying to stop crying. She was my sister, and she did an awful thing. I cannot forget it. How could she? How could she do it? "'How could she leave a man like you that—' Marcia stopped, her brown eyes flashing fiercely, as she thought of Captain Leavenworth's hateful look at her that night in the moonlight. She shuddered and hid her face in her hands once more, and cried with all the fervor of her young and undisciplined soul. David did not know what to do with a young woman in tears. Had it been Kate, his alarm would have vied with a delicious sense of his own power to comfort— but even the thought of comforting anyone but Kate was now a bitter thing. Was it always going to be so? Would he always have to start and shrink with sudden remembrance of his pain at every turn of his way? He drew a deep sigh and looked helplessly at his companion. Then he did a hard thing. He tried to justify Kate, just as he had been trying all the morning to justify her to himself." THE ODD THING ABOUT IT ALL WAS THAT THE VERY DEEPEST STING OF HIS SORROW WAS THAT KATE COULD HAVE DONE THIS THING, HIS PEERLESS KATE. SHE CARED FOR HIM. HE BREATHED THE WORDS AS IF THEY HURT HIM. SHE SHOULD HAVE TOLD YOU SO BEFORE THEN. SHE SHOULD NOT HAVE LET YOU THINK SHE CARED FOR YOU, EVER, SAID Marcia FIERCELY. STRANGELY ENOUGH, THE PLAIN TRUTH WAS BITTER TO THE MAN TO HEAR, ALTHOUGH HE HAD BEEN FEELING IT IN HIS SOUL EVER SINCE THEY HAD DISCOVERED THE FLIGHT OF THE BRIDE. "'Perhaps there was too much pressure brought to bear upon her,' he said lamely. "'Looking back, I can see times when she did not second me with regard to hurrying the marriage so warmly as I could have wished. I laid it to her shyness. Yet she seemed happy when we met. Did you—did did, she—have you any idea she had been planning this for long, or was it sudden?' "'The words were out now, the thing he longed to know.' It had been riding its fiery way through his soul. Had she meant to torture him this way all along, or was it the yielding to a sudden impulse that perhaps she had already repented? He looked at Marcia with piteous, almost pleading eyes, and her tortured young soul would have given anything to have been able to tell him what he wanted to know. Yet she could not help him. She knew no more than he. She steadied her own nerves and tried to tell all she knew or surmised, tried her best to reveal Kate in her true character before him, not that she wished to speak ill of her sister, only that she would be true and give this lover a chance to escape some of the pain, if possible, by seeing the real Kate as she was at home, without varnish or furbelows. Yet she reflected that those who knew Kate's shallowness well still loved her in spite of it, and always bowed to her wishes." Gradually their talk subsided into deep silence once more, broken only by the jog-trot of the horse or the stray note of some bird. The road wound into the woods with its fragrant scents of hemlock, spruce, and wintergreen, and out into a broad, hot, sunny way. The bees hummed in the flowers, and the grasshoppers sang hotly along the side of the dusty road. Over the whole earth there seemed to be the sound of a soft simmering, as if nature were boiling down her sweets the better to keep them during the winter. The strain of the day's excitement and hurry and the weariness of sorrow were beginning to tell upon the two travelers. The road was heavy with dust, and the horse plodded monotonously through it. With the drone of the insects and the glare of the afternoon sun, it was not strange that little by little a great drowsiness came over Marcia, and her head began to droop like a poor wilted flower until she was fast asleep. David noticed that she slept, and drew her head against his shoulder that she might rest more comfortably. Then he settled back to his own pain, a deeper pang coming as he thought how different it would have been if the head resting against his shoulder had been golden instead of brown. Then soon he too fell asleep, and the old horse, going slow and yet more slowly, finding no urging voice behind her and seeing no need to hurry herself, came at last on the way to the shade of an apple tree and halted, finding it a pleasant place to remain and think until the heat of the afternoon was past. A while she ate the tender grass that grew beneath the generous shade and nipped daintily at an apple or two that hung within tempting reach. Then she too drooped her white lashes and nodded and drooped and took an afternoon nap. A farmer, trundling by in his empty hay wagon, found them so, looked curiously at them, then drew up his team and came and prodded David in the chest with his long hickory stick. Wake up there, stranger, and move on, he called as he jumped back into his wagon and took up the reins. We don't want no tipsy folks around these parts, and with a loud clatter he rode on. David, whose strong temperance principles had made him somewhat marked in his own neighborhood, roused and flushed over the insinuation, and started up the lazy horse, which flung out guiltily upon the way as if to make up for lost time the driver however was soon lost in his own troubles which returned upon him with redoubled sharpness as new sorrow always does after brief sleep but marcia slept on end of chapter seven